traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Economist. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, finance editor. This week on Money Talks, we'll discuss China's involvement in Africa. It's been likened to neocolonialism, with loans to the continent reportedly exceeding even those of the World Bank. But is the Middle Kingdom pouring as much money into Africa as we think? James Miles, our China editor, is here to chat to us about that. So inevitably, uh, we're going to see a, a slowing of loan growth uh, to Africa and, and a, a slowing of uh, Chinese investment in it. But first, are markets going to party like it's 1999? Uh, yes, we were looking for any way to bring in a homage to Prince in this week's show. But there are also some uncanny similarities between the market conditions of the late 90s and today. Let's cast our mind back to those years when the dot-com boom was getting underway. Hurricane Mitch ravaged Honduras. The House of Representatives impeached U.S. President Bill Clinton. The Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. And emerging markets were in a dire state, too. Asia was in the throes of a crippling financial crisis. Even Russia, which had been seen as one of the safest emerging markets, defaulted on its debt, and the ruble crashed. But in spite of all that, Wall Street was still bullish. Inflation was incredibly low. American share prices were incredibly high. The new technology of the internet promised to change the world. Buy, finance, lease and insure cars and trucks at low cost on the internet at autobytel.com. Save time, money and... But soon afterwards, everything changed. The dot-com bubble burst, inflation picked up again, and emerging markets recovered from their slump and entered a long period of growth. With me to discuss whether today's markets resemble those of 1999 and whether a similar reversal is about to take place is Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist. So, Philip, what are the parallels between the conditions that have prevailed in the last couple of years and those of the late 1990s in terms of the markets? Well, Robert Arnott at Research Affiliates, a research firm, sees four main parallels. One is that inflation expectations have been falling. The second is that emerging market currencies have been declining. The third, that emerging market equities have been underperforming those of the developed world. And finally, that growth stocks, those where earnings are expected to increase quite rapidly, technology, for example, have been beating value stocks. Those tend to be in old industries, uh, which look cheap on certain measures. And there are already signs, aren't there, that those uh, four parallels, they're beginning to reverse. Yes, there was a big change in mid-February in the markets, which saw the pessimism which marked the first few weeks of the year disappear. And since then, commodities have gone up, helping emerging market currencies and emerging market equities. We've also seen some of those tech stocks start to fall. And with higher commodity prices, inflation expectations have started to rise again. So the fear of global deflation seems to have diminished. And so if the analogy that research affiliates is making with the late 1990s holds, what can we expect? How, how should things develop? Well, once you moved on from 1999, you had a very good period for emerging market equities that lasted for much of the following decade. And emerging markets tend to do best when they are undervalued relative to global stock markets 
and when pessimism is most marked about their prospects. And we have seen that period. So if that change occurs, then emerging markets will have a prolonged period of outperformance. And secondly, value stocks tend to do best when they are cheapest relative to growth stocks, when people are too optimistic about the outlook for those high growth companies. And again, if you look at the valuation measures, it's not quite as extreme as it was in 1999, but it's approaching those levels. Right. So so if research affiliates are right, uh, and it is like 1999, then emerging market stock markets should do very well. The tech stocks are doing so well at the moment in America should sell off. Inflation should tick up again. Uh, Commodity prices uh, rise again and so on. But of course, the parallels with 1999 aren't perfect, are they? What are some of the reasons why the analogy might not hold? Well, first of all, um, the global economy in the late 90s was doing very well. The developed world was doing particularly well. The US was at the end of a five-year rapid boom as the internet was really kicking in. Um, In contrast, the US is barely growing in the first quarter of the year, figures that later this week are likely to reveal. Secondly, the underlying growth of emerging markets, which was still kicking in in the late 1990s, as the reforms in China and other places were catching hold, is a much less strong long-term story than it was then. We've already passed the point at which the Chinese workforce will start to decline because of the one-child policy. We are already seeing in many emerging markets that governments are interfering too much, and we have seen recessions in both Brazil and Russia, two of the famous BRICs that were seen as driving the market. So I think the outlook for the world is not as positive as it was in late 1999-2000, which is why the analogy is not exact. So so we could still have the sort of dot-com crash part of the story, but without the emerging market boom part of the story. So so gloom at both ends. Yes, I think the outlook is for low returns going forward, because when you start with these high valuations on equities and very low yields on bonds, it's hard to get a high return out of that scenario. Potentially not a very pretty picture then. Philip Coggan, thank you very much. Uh, Remember, you can always join in the conversation by tweeting at econbizfin or at econeconomics. Now, turning to China, with me now to discuss a new report looking at Chinese loans to Africa from the China-Africa Research Initiative, that's part of Johns Hopkins University, is our China editor, James Miles. So, James, we all have this image of of China almost uh, taking over Africa, of lending freely to all sorts of African governments, of of investing, especially in countries that it feels could provide uh, natural resources, of elbowing out Western countries and and supplanting them in terms of influence over African governments. But this uh, survey of of Chinese lending to Africa uh, paints a, a slightly different picture, doesn't it? Yes, well, the impression uh, conveyed by the data that the China-Africa Research Initiative compiled is that China has found it far more difficult, in fact, to translate its promises of lending to Africa into reality. They looked at more than 1,200 reports of uh, Chinese loans uh, made to Africa. They found that uh, well over half of them uh, didn't even materialize. The total amount of China's loans uh, between 2000 and 2014 uh, was roughly in the order uh, they found of uh, 86.9 billion US dollars. Now, in fact, that's far short of what uh, many others had been reporting. Uh, There had been reports even that China had surpassed uh, the World Bank as a 
lender to Africa. In fact, uh, according to to this research, uh, uh, China has been growing steadily as a lender to Africa, but uh, for most years has remained uh, well short of what the World Bank has been lending. Its lending is still growing. It may surpass the World Bank uh, in the years ahead, uh, but it's been uh, nothing like as prominent a lender as many as have supposed. And so all these loans that have been announced with great fanfare and then never showed up, what, what do you think is going on there? Well, it's been a, a steep learning curve for China. They went in, I think, uh, a few years ago, expecting that once you do a deal with the government, that's all that matters. It's government to government business. The projects will be implemented as, as planned. That's the way it normally works in China, where lending is from the state, very often for state-backed projects. But it is very different in Africa. The political environment is very different. The culture is very different. And Chinese companies have found it uh, far harder than expected to put these projects in, into practice and uh, to make money out of them. And, and now, in addition to the difficulties of, of doing business in Africa in general, there are other obstacles to Chinese in investment, aren't there? Well, there are indeed. And, and that is simply that China's economic growth is slowing. And, and with that uh, slowdown in demand from China is coming less demand uh, for the commodities in, in Africa that Chinese companies had been so hungry for. Uh, so inevitably, uh, we're going to see a, a slowing of loan growth uh, to Africa and, and a, a slowing of uh, Chinese investment in it. And then anyway, Africa's not the main destination for Chinese investment in the first place, is it? Well, no, there, there had been something of an impression that China had a big mission when it came to Africa. This was a, a huge new area of contest uh, with the West when it came to to winning over influence. And the impression was that China would use its investment, use its loans to these to these African uh, countries to, in effect, carve out what one uh, American journalist described as a, as a second continent for China. Now, uh, I think we're seeing far less of any sort of great strategic ambition of that nature. It's extremely important to bear in mind that only about 3% of China's foreign uh, direct investment is directed at uh, Africa. Asia is a far uh, bigger recipient uh, of it. And indeed, China's strategic interests in Asia, I would say, are far greater than they are in Africa. So Africa's not quite the be-all and end-all to China after all. Uh, James Miles, thank you very much. That's it for Money Talks this week. If you want to learn more about Chinese lending to Africa or the analogies with 1999, pick up a copy of the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website, economist.com. I'm Edward McBride. Goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.